Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. I'm Julie, your host, and I'm so delighted you could join us. My intention in doing this show is to provide information, insight, and comfort people all over the world by helping to answer life's unanswerable questions. We got Rob Gentile with us today, you guys. You are going to love, love, love this man. Hi, Rob. Hey, Julie. How are you? I'm great. Rob and I, before we started recording, we, we've we been talking for, I don't know, probably 15 minutes. I said, Rob, we got to save some of this for the show because <laughs> we have so much in common yeah. that we were chatting about. So uh, what a delight to have you. I've really been looking forward to this day coming because I knew we'd have just multiple things to discuss. So have I. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. You bet. All right, everybody, let me tell you about Rob. Rob Gentio was clinically dead for at least 20 minutes. During that time, Rob was shown extraordinary things and given the meaning of life. Rob's book, Quarks of Light, details those experiences. Rob, what happened? I died. <laughs> well, I need the details. Oh, Julie. Um, well, let's start with what happened that that uh, dreadful night, which is actually, you know, what you think sometimes is dreadful turns out to be just a, a, a life-changing event that just transforms you forever, which is really what's happened to me, but you can't see it at the time. So I'm originally from Pittsburgh, PA, and I live in Charlotte, North Carolina now. And what had happened was is that for almost two years, I had been suffering from some kind of unidentifiable pain that was in my neck and nobody can figure out. And finally, to make a long story short, after an army of doctors, I was diagnosed with bone spurs that I had gotten from sports injuries when I was younger. So typically, you know, when you have an operation to remove bone spurs in the neck, they cut you in the back and open you up. And then afterwards, they fuse the discs together and then you're in pain pretty much for the rest of your life. So there was a very famous Korean doctor, ironically, in Pittsburgh, who had developed his own method called a foraminal anatomy, where he went in through the front of the neck. It's a little slit here in my neckline. And he goes in and he moves the esophagus aside and he developed these special drills and he just drills out those spurs that are pinching on the nerves, causing the pain. Well, it's a simple surgery. People go uh, there from all over the world. And I went to Pittsburgh and you only stay in the hospital one night. I was released. I come back to North Carolina. And four nights later in my bed around 11, 11.30 p.m., all of a sudden, and my wife tells me this because I passed out, but I started to scream in pain, flop around. And, you know, interestingly, 
Uh, I have a special needs child, my daughter Maria. She has Rett syndrome. She's 26. And she has a seizure disorder. So my wife, you know, in the middle of the night, it's dark, you're confused. And she ran down the hall thinking it was Maria. Meantime, it's me flopping around in the bed. Um, and she calls 911. Thank goodness the hospital is less than three miles from my house. They throw me in the ambulance and they know that I'm having a massive heart attack on the way to the hospital. So they get me into the hospital. It was curious because, uh, no, so I've been knocked out from the pain the whole time. So they wheel me in there on a gurney. They realize it's a heart attack, whatever it is that they give you to thin the blood and they stabilize me. So my wife's in the room with a nurse and the nurse says, look, the cardiologist isn't in the hospital. We've called him. He's in or out, but your husband's stable. Should be fine until he gets here. Well, We'll figure out what's going on. As soon as she said that, my wife, uh, the way she describes it, it's like uh, something out of the movie, The Exorcist. It was almost surely as if somebody had grabbed me by my shirt with great force and just pulled me forward on the gurney. And my eyes popped wide open and I screamed out the name Frosty. When I screamed out the name Frosty, I collapsed backward on the gurney, flatlined, code blue rang out in the hospital, and in rushed a team of doctors and nurses that began to try to resuscitate me. So before they came in, they, my wife grabbed the doctor, Dr. Patel, who's now a friend of mine, and told Dr. Patel, you have to save my husband's life. We have a special needs child. She's not going to make it without him, and I cannot do this alone. So they take my wife out of the room and they began to work on me. Nothing was working. They could not resuscitate me. They did everything from, you know, the typical paddle shocks, vigorous sternal rubs. Four times they injected me directly in the heart with epinephrine. I just was not responding. But something compelled Dr. Patel to keep working on me. And she did. She kept working on me, working on me until she was able to obtain a very slight pulse. And in that moment, Dr. Bajwa, the cardiologist arrived, they did an emergency cath through my thigh. He found the blockage, which was in my Widowmaker, um, inserted two stints, but unfortunately it was too late. I had gone into cardiogenic shock and another doctor arrived, Dr. Carson, and intubated me and I went into a four-day coma. So that's how it began. <laughs> wow. Do you remember anything during that time that you were unconscious? How long was it? I was in a coma for four days. And certainly I don't remember anything from, I don't even remember screaming and passing out in my bed. Um, the only thing I remember is on the fourth day, Dr. Carson went in to talk to my wife and family and said, look, we can't wait any longer. It's been four days. He's probably a vegetable. And in the meantime, by the way, um, so neurologists were coming in and out of my room, checking to see if I were brain dead. How they do that, I don't know. My oldest brother drove down from Pittsburgh and he called the local parish priest. I was raised Catholic. And the, the parish priest came in, anointed me with oil, 
and gave me what's called uh, extreme unction, which a Catholic only gets that once in their lifetime to prepare them to meet the Lord. So I was given extreme unction, had my last rites, and everybody pretty much just walked away until the fourth day. And Dr. Carson said, we're going to we're going to pull the tubes out and see what we've got. And I started choking and, you know, here I am. But what's curious about when you say, what did I remember? So this was my, Julie, this was my first brush with a near-death experience. Because when I came out of coma, it was my wife, Melanie, that was the first to come into the room. My arms were paralyzed. And she came in and she said, I was talking like a child in this high-pitched voice. And I, and I kept on saying, it was frosty. It was frosty. You have to believe me. You, it was frosty. He came to me. And my wife said, oh, my God, Rob, it, it, that makes total sense now. And I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? And she said, right before you flatlined, you were unconscious. You popped up on the gurney, screamed out his name, and then collapsed. And that's when you flatlined. And she said, tell me exactly what Frosty said to you. And Frosty had said to me, tell my family that I'm in a good place, but I've made a big mess out of things and you have to go back and help clean things up. So Julie is for the backstory. Frosty was my brother-in-law and Frosty was about my age. I had died that night. I was 56 years old. And Frosty was going through a divorce. He was living in the upstairs bedroom of his parents' house, which is only about 30 miles from here. And Frosty had struggled with some drug addiction in the past, but he had been clean for a number of years. Um, he had his own business as a surveyor. It was around Christmas, a lot of pressure, his only child in, in college. So he went out that night to try to blow off some steam. And unfortunately, he got a hold of a street drug that just drove him mad for like 40 minutes and, and he took his own life. And it was that night, about 5.30 in the morning, that his mother had called me and said, you know, Rob, I, you're the only one that could probably do this. Can you come down and go up into his room and try to find a note or a journal or something that will give us a clue as to why he did this? And I went up into that bedroom seven times, picked through a rather gruesome scene, but I finally found a journal and, and gave it to the family. So, you know, even to this day, all these years later, I wonder, it was kind of a, a dual message that was going on there. It was Frosty telling me that he was in a good place. And, you know, as a Catholic, I was raised, and I know they've changed the rules since then, but as a Catholic, I was raised to believe that was a mortal sin. If you took your own life, you were, you were damned to hell and there was no coming back. But here he was in a good place. And, you know, I'd known Frosty for 20 years. He had an anxiety disorder. But there he was just so peaceful. And none of those demons seemed to follow him into that spiritual realm. And he was home in a happy place. And... I'm not saying that, you know, all the collateral damage that that goes along with that, because the, the toll it took on his parents was catastrophic and his daughter. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, that is something to be condoned by any means. But to have someone kind of wake me up, and that was my first huge paradigm shift in my belief system, that 
how can a loving God actually condemn someone, particularly when their mind isn't right? And the other thing that I thanked Frosty for was that he prepared me for what was yet to come <laughs> um, when, when I was in Chicago and almost died again. So that's how, that's how it all began, Julie. Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, the fact that you're here telling the tale is a miracle because when the organs shut down for a period of time and and I know you were dead supposedly for 20 minutes or longer, they the organs shut down and they're really hard to get restarted to the point where somebody can really live a good quality of life. My father-in-law in probably... I would say 91 in LA had a massive heart attack at work. They got him to the hospital. They revived him after I think 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And he lived six weeks, but he never really recovered because mm. of that, because of the organs shutting down. So right. I have personal experience with that. So the fact that you're here to tell us your story <laughs> is just remarkable and a miracle in itself. Secondly, Rob, the thing that I find so interesting about Frosty is when I first read that, you know, the Frosty, I'm thinking Frosty, the snowman showed up right. <laughs> because spirit gives us information a lot of the time in symbols. And so that was my first thought. And then I heard the rest of the story. But it's interesting because I work with a lot of families who have a loved one who's dying and I've come up with this series of events that happen as somebody is transitioning in their last days. I call it the 12 phases of transition. And it's how angels and the spirits of deceased loved ones and pets are there. And yeah. no surprise that you had a deceased loved one in the form of a family member who was there to greet you. I see that all the time in my mind's eye. And interestingly enough, university-based research shows that 90% of people at the end of their lives see the spirits of deceased loved ones and pets, 90%. So yeah, I, I thought, well, yeah, of course, Frosty was there. You know, Julie, I went, so I went through that with my mother. So when my, before my mother passed, she hadn't spoken in almost a year because she had Alzheimer's and, you know, mini strokes, Frank strokes, all kind of problems, right? And uh, she died in our, in our home in Pittsburgh. And I got there about two days before she died. And it was kind of curious because, and, and I was the closest to my mother because I was the youngest of four boys. My father had died in a steel mill accident when I was five. So I was always the one uh, next to her as growing up. But it was curious because there she was, and I'm in the room with her, and in this eerie kind of uh, moment, out of nowhere, I started to talk to her about um, her brother, Ernest, who had passed away about six or seven weeks prior. And all of a sudden, she started to talk. And she said, she started to stare away at like a corner in the, in the wall. And she said, oh, it's my brother, Ernest. He's so happy. And I remember I stood up and I ran over to the wall and I was kind of like rubbing the wall in a circular motion. And I said, mom, is this like a portal? Is you see anybody else with, uh, you know, with Uncle Ernie there? 
And she never spoke again, but she had seen Ernest and it was two days later that she had, that she had passed away. But so he was there comforting her. I heard this story, Rob, in the last week, I was talking with a client who had lost her dad recently. She said, same thing. He hadn't spoken in a really long time, maybe more than a year. And the last thing, like hours before he died, he sat up in bed like you did on the gurney. And he said, oh, hi, dad. (laughs) And then he fell back and he was dead within an hour or something. But she said it reminded her of a little boy whose dad had come to pick him up from kindergarten to take him home. And I said, well, his dad was there to take him home, but his dad was there to take him home back to, to, um, you know, back to heaven, his home in heaven. And I just thought that was such a remarkable story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell Mm -hmm. us about why Dr. Patel continued to work on you. Hmm. Yes. And we talk about this now after after all these years. And by the way, so those three that saved my life that night, I call them the Holy Trinity, (laughs) Dr. Patel, Dr. Bajwa, and Dr. Carson, all good friends of mine now. And it's um, it's curious, I really get emotional talking about this because when I came out of coma on the second day, it was Dr. Patel that came to me. And of course, you can imagine, I didn't know who Dr. Patel was, Dr. Bajwa, Carson, any of these, any of these people. But so I'm laying there, I'm still paralyzed, my arms are still paralyzed, and here comes this beautiful little Indian woman with these glistening brown eyes. And she pulls up a chair and she sits down next to me. And she reaches in and puts her hand on mine. And she introduced herself. And she started telling me about um the doctor that worked on you that night and I'm so happy to see you alive and she started to tell me all the things that we went through together that night and then Julie it got real personal and she began to tear up and she said you know the conversation shifted to her dad and I was in my mind's eye and thinking why all of a sudden is this woman who I've never met starting to talk about her father because there was something else that happened that night besides Frosty and I really put, couldn't put my finger on it. I was you know, still coming out of coma, just realizing what had happened to me. My whole life has destroyed everything. And she says, you know, uh, my father and I were very close. And he helped me through medical school. He was a bright man. And we could almost read each other's thoughts. And we were so very close. And she said the only thing he was living for was to see my first child. And she said, I was pregnant with my first child, a boy. And my father was just living for that moment. And six months before um, I had my my baby, he died suddenly of an aneurysm. And she said, you know, ever since then, Rob, I've lost my spirituality. I'm Hindu. I had a great spirituality. And, you know, I've been bitter about that. And I'm thinking, why is this woman telling me all this? And then she said, but, you know, seeing you here today alive, because there's no way you should be alive gives me hope, just gives me hope that there's something else out there. And in that moment, it hit me, the puzzle kind of unscrambled. And then I knew, because while she was working on me, another male spirit had entered the room. And all I could hear over and over and over again was, 
Keep working on him. Don't give up. You can save him. Keep working on him. You can save him. And it struck me in that moment that it was her father. And although she didn't hear him, it was some, there was something that compelled her not to give up. And I knew in that moment that it was her father right beside her, always had been beside her, and, you know, telling her spiritually, keep going, keep working on him, keep working on him. And when I told her that, of course, and by the way, I didn't tell her in that moment because I, I knew she would, she would have thought I was crazy. I actually didn't tell her that story until a year later when I came back from Chicago where I got my heart and I met her in the cafeteria with a dozen roses and we sat down and I told her that story. And that's when she broke down. And now every year on his birthday, we make an effort to talk to each other because it, it changed her whole life. It, it turned her around in terms of her own spirituality and connecting with that again. So it was beautiful. Well, interestingly enough, I've had a, an, a retired ER physician who was the director of a level one trauma center. And he came out of the closet after he retired and talks about, his name's Jeff O'Driscoll and he's been on the show and he talks about how family members' spirits oftentimes were in the ER advising him and his team what to do and he could perceive them. The other interesting point of this too, Rob, is I scan people telepathically, remote viewing-wise, when they're in surgery. A lot of the time I have somebody tomorrow morning I'm going to be checking in on when they're having surgery. And there's always a plethora of spirits in the operating room. Yeah. And the patient's guardian angels over the head of anesthesia. And there are always spirit doctors that are advising the actual surgeons and then deceased loved ones, family members are kind of in a horseshoe at the foot of the operating table of the OR table. And so it's fascinating watching all of that. And of course, as an inventor of surgical devices, you know, I spent 30 years in and out of operating rooms, so I know what they're yeah. doing. And my husband had his knees replaced. And the second one, the surgeon was, he was having to kind of wiggle the implant a little bit to get it in. So he came to talk to me post-op and Tim, my husband's in the recovery room. I said, you had to kind of jiggle that implant a little bit to get it in. What was going on with that? And he started laughing and he said, you really could see what I was doing in there, couldn't you? And I said, yeah, I told you beforehand. So yeah, no surprise that Dr. Patel's dad was there advising her to help yeah. you because he's yeah. one of her main spirit guides now. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was yeah. beautiful. Oh my gosh. So tell us about what happened then you recovered from the coma, you went home, what was going on with your heart? And then tell us what happened after that. Oh, sure. Well, never really recovered. I, uh, I did go home, but before I went home, as you can imagine. So my heart, when I came on the fourth day, uh, after I was completely, my arms started to move. They waited to tell me the bad news. See, <laughs> So um, they all came in. The doctors came in and said, look, Rob, your heart's completely destroyed pretty much. The only way you're going to survive is to get a heart transplant. So before I left the hospital, they put me in, I'm sure you're familiar with it. They put me in a deep defibrillator device which looks like a bulletproof vest. 
And uh, that thing, you know, there's a battery pack on your on your right shoulder that that has the energy. And every time my heart would go out, of course, this thing, you know, try to shock you back to life, which is PTSD in itself, because mine was going out all the time. And then they put a port in my chest, which was dripping milrinone on my heart. So I had another battery pack on my left shoulder with the bag of milrinone. And every 60 seconds, you'd hear this whirring sound, you know, brrr, just dripping this medicine on my heart. And, and what milrinone does is it's like STP. It actually, it makes the heart pump, but it starts the, the clock ticking and it wears the heart out very quickly. So time was running out. They, they let me go home. And of course, here we have a couple of pretty well-known um, clinics for heart transplant. We have the Sanger Institute in Charlotte and Duke. Um, and I went to all of these places and nobody can give me a heart. The only thing they could offer me was something called the LVAD, which is a horrifying device where they actually drill a hole in your heart, put a motor in there, and it just spins the blood around. And I had done some research on the LVAD, and less than, less than I think, 28% of everyone who gets the LVAD never makes it. You know, multiple strokes, infections, all these things. So, and, you know, I had written, there was a couple of institutes in, Florida that I had written to sent them my records that were were big on um, it was kind of like stem cell regeneration but my my heart was so gone Julie that it was amazing that I was even walking around so I was uh, I was about to give up on getting a heart transplant and lo and behold I didn't even know this but the owner of my company which is based in Chicago he he's on the uh, the board at the University of Chicago Medicine, and he heard about my situation, and he called me, <clears throat> and he said, "You know, Rob, I'm gonna I'm gonna help you get a get a heart." And three days later, I got a uh, a phone call from the head of surgery there, and he I sent him all my records, and he said, "Rob, if you come to Chicago, no guarantees, but we should be able to transplant you within three to four months." So interestingly enough, when I got there and I walked through the door and I'll never forget, and this guy's name is Dr. Uriel, the head of the heart failure department at U Chicago. And there's a story about Dr. Uriel, who's obviously one of the archangels names. So, so Uriel, I walk in the door and Uriel sees me and he goes, I have no idea how you're even walking around, <laughs> but you got here and we'll see what we can do for you. So Julie, it was there that um, I had met an extraordinary man by the name of Dr. Juvenandan, who's a very uh, uncharacteristically tall Indian man who is a world famous heart transplant surgeon. He's transplanted over 1500 people, including his own wife. Wow. And he had been working on, you'll be interested in this, a medical device called the New Pulse for many, many, many years. And what it is, is a counter-pulsation device. It's about the size of a shoebox, smaller than that, and it's run by an iPad. So he says to me, he said, Rob, there's no way you're going to make it three, four months while we wait for a donor heart. You got to go through all this testing, you know, because if we find cancer, there's certain things that preclude you from getting a heart transplant because hearts are in such 
short supply, even now that they can't afford to waste a heart. So he said, uh, I've been working on this new device called the new pulse. And I said, Oh, that's really cool, doc. So tell me how this thing works, you know? And he said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll cut you right here and I'll fish this little balloon pump down through your aorta and out the left side of your body, we're going to put this titanium disc behind your rib cage and the wires for this device will come out there and hook up to this pump that's run by an iPad. And he said, it'll be your bridge to transplant. You can walk around the hospital so your muscles don't atrophy too much. We got to make sure you're in good shape for transplant. Um, and he said, it should keep you alive. And I said, that's incredible. He said, how many people have had this thing? And he said, uh, look down the floor. And he said, well, that's just it. Um, we've only experimented on cows. And I said, you mean like where steaks come from, cows? <laughs> and he said, yeah, but you know, we had it in we had it in one person, and it was uh, it worked, but we only had it in him for like forty eight hours because his heart showed up. He said, we need three weeks of data before we can take this to, to the FDA to get uh, approval for human trials. And he said, it's up to you. So, um, you know, Julie, it was the best thing I ever did. I, I signed the papers before I called my wife, who's a pharmacist, and she's very familiar with medical trials and things like that. So she freaked out, of course, but I had no choice uh, in, in the moment. And it was the best thing that I ever did because the new pulse was successful. And now it's being used all over the country as a bridge to transplant. As a matter of fact, some patients are actually going home with it and waiting for their heart to arrive at home instead of waiting in the hospital like I did. So I made medical history with the new pulse, proud of it, and uh, got scars to prove it. <laughs> that's, that's a big deal because I did university-based research on my inventions before they we took them to the FDA to get approved and then and then you go to the FDA first then you do it in other countries to the equivalent governing body and actually one of the clinical trials that we did on my inventions was in your hometown at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center okay yeah big huge orthopedic place and at Indiana University and some other places and it's a big deal to yeah. do those to get through all the review boards and to get the the patient's consent and make sure that the patients are the right people for the study and all of that. So that was very brave of you to do that. And obviously you were being led to do that and look at how it not yeah. only helped you, but help, helped others because you had the courage to do it. Yes, it was, a, it was, a, and it was a tough decision to make. I'll be honest with you, but when you're faced with, well, you're going to die any minute here. And it could take months before we figure out uh, it, it, even if you're going to get a heart, because if you find something in you that precludes you from getting a heart, you know, so it was it was um, it was kind of a do or die moment. So I would I say that it. you're a really cute guinea pig, too. You know? <laughs> you're <laughs> very those, kind. When you're in those studies, you're it's kind of like you're a big guinea pig because uh, we're yeah. we're tested to see what happened. OK, so you get on the the new device as the clinical yeah. study, then what happens? So I get on the new device and I go through a very difficult period. Uh, my body 
even though the device wasn't the, the device's fault, I have uh, what's called a hyper-inflammatory um, response to things. And my body really didn't know what to do with the new pulse. They thought I had a blood infection. So I went through weeks and weeks and weeks of high fevers and a lot of other things, nuclear tests. And um, it turns out that it was really just high doses of prednisone that got everything under control. But during that process, I really couldn't move. I got pneumonia in my right lung, so they had to pierce me. And, you know, I had to keep that tube in my right lung for days and days and days on end while they drained the fluids out. It was just one thing after another. And it just got to the point where my spirit was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. I'm about 174 pounds. I had atrophied down to about 132, 138. Um, I was this wizened old man with a child's voice. And then... I, and I and I hate to be a spoiler because I know that there will be some folks that want to read the book, but they found something else in me that um, took me off the transplant list. So when they took me off the transplant list, Julie, that was the that was the last straw. There I was, you know, I'd gone through all of this. It had been six months since my since my heart attack, and away from my daughter, Maria, who's nonverbal, she has Rett syndrome, special needs child. You know, my wife is here in North Carolina by herself. And um, they found something in me that precluded me from transplant. And my and Dr. Uriel came in and he said to me, Rob, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but you're going off the transplant list and it's the elevator or nothing. So I was um, in a place where I just was really tired of fighting. And I had written him a very impassioned text about, you know, this, you're going to have to figure out a way to transplant me. I'll do whatever it takes because I just can't, uh, I can't accept this. And I'll never forget as, as I got weaker and weaker and weaker, it was very interesting what happened to me. I was on the eighth floor of the University of Chicago Hospital with a view of Lake Michigan. And all of a sudden, one night, it was late at night, I was in there by myself, and this storm just whipped up out of nowhere. And I mean, sheets of rain just slamming against the window, thunder and lightning. And it was in that moment that my spirit just kind of collapsed. And I just let everything just come out. And it was almost as if I was dragging the, all of this, all this negative energy towards me like a magnet. I was just pulling everything in. There had been something that I was deeply ashamed about when I was young uh, that started to torment me, and all of these, all of these things, truly, was just really breaking me down. And all of a sudden, I just screamed out in my room, "Do with me what you will." I just given up, and my heart went into tachycardia. And there I was again, my heart was failing. And it was in that moment that, and this is very difficult to explain because there's really no words to articulate it, but it was in that moment that I was taken up into a place that in the book I describe it as into the ethereal. I was taken into this ethereal space 
not heaven, but somewhere in between. And there I was, I found myself standing in the middle of nowhere. And I remember thinking, what, how could this possibly be? What is happening? Because I could see myself in my hospital bed with the heart pump pumping me, trying to keep me alive in this broken atrophied body in my green hospital gown. But yet at the same time, I'm standing in the middle of nowhere, whole, in the same green hospital gown. Have you ever heard of Cozy Earth Bedding? It's your ultimate luxury escape. Cozy Earth sheets are temperature regulating and incredibly soft, and they even have a 10-year warranty. They're made from organic bamboo and silk, are hypoallergenic, and even antimicrobial. Cozy Earth sheets are so amazing, they've been on Oprah's favorite things list for five years in a row, and I have them on my bed right now. So if you're ready to elevate your sleep, Cozy Earth has a special offer for just for my listeners. Go to CozyEarth.com and use the code AskJulie for a 35% discount. That's C-O-Z-Y-Earth.com and use code AskJulie for a 35% discount. Upgrade your sleep with Cozy Earth Bedding. I love them and so will you. And I'm looking around and then it struck me that I'm in this otherworldly place. And it was this infinite expanse. It was almost as if my being was made out of sand and somebody just picked me up and just threw the grains of my being into this timeless, infinite expanse. And there I was connected to the vast wisdom of the universe, all of it without words. And I remember being disappointed that no loved ones came to me you know, Frosty wasn't there. My parents weren't there. Nobody was there. I remember being disappointed, raised as a Catholic, that Jesus Christ wasn't there. And then it hit me uh, that God was expressing divinity in concepts that I wholly understood in the moment. Because in that place, I did not experience uh, music like some people do. I didn't experience um, the five senses had no functionality there. It was just me standing in the middle of nowhere. And it was almost as if communication was kind of telepathic and synchronistic at the same time. If I wanted to know the answer to any question, all I had to do was think about it. And it was kind of like felt and absorbed. And then I knew the answer. And, and there I was, and I began to get these these impressions impressed on my spirit, things like, this is the divine source. This is the power back of all things. This is divine energy. This is your real identity. And I knew that I was in the presence of the creator somehow. And I thought to myself, wow, this is so simple. You know, everything here, any answer that I ever wanted to know, I just thought about it. And it was like, we just make it so complicated as human beings, but here it's like really simple to understand everything. And I remember thinking that, you know, God expresses and experiences life through us. That's how, at least that was my impression of how things work, how this divine expresses through us in this life and why that is the most important thing to 
find one's purpose and live it. And that's where the divine really shines brightly in our lives. And as I began to move through this space, I started to feel connected to everything. And that's where it's inexplicable to me, but that's where I saw and became part of this gigantic interactive web. And that's what's on the cover of my book. And this web, Julie, the best way that I can describe it is we all know what a neuron looks like. So a neuron has a nucleus and then it has dendrites and tentacles, they connect. And this web, these, these nuclei were all connected and they just were infinite in expanse. And it was almost like this web was woven and just hung on the ceiling of the universe. And the most extraordinary part of it was, is that each little nucleus had a spark or a quark of light in it. And in that place, I knew that that light in this quark is, well, let me explain it this way. I came to understand there that quarks are the smallest building blocks of matter and quarks are made of light. These quarks combine and they can create infinite possibilities in the universe. They can create a person, a planet, a plant, a dog, a tree, animate, inanimate. It really doesn't matter. It's all the same. And I thought to myself, wow, of course. Of course the creator had to use the same formula. It's the same formula for everything. It's just we manifest in different forms. And I thought to myself, well, I was connected to this web and I became part of this web and I was one of those, one of those quarks of light. And I thought to myself, if I hurt myself here, I hurt everything connected to me. But if I love, the light will spread. And that's how we light up the world. And I knew in that moment that I was not my race, my religion, my body. It was a message of unity and oneness and how we are all connected. And then the most extraordinary thing happened because in addition to the web, standing there looking down at my bed, I began to see nurses coming in and out of patients' rooms. And the curious part of this whole thing was is that I was only seeing nurses that I had made negative assumptions about. And I remember thinking, well, I thought you had evolved past that, at least, judgment. Um, but I guess not, because only the nurses that I was making negative assumptions about were coming in and out of patients' rooms. And all of a sudden, I began to see on multiple screens their lives in a regression of events, which was, you know, mind-blowing. And what was happening was, is that their lives were moving backwards from where they were now to childhood. And every time there was a watershed event, whether good or bad, you know, personal choices that they should not have made or circumstances out of their control, abuse, wrecks, whatever it was that happened in their life, that movie would stop for a millisecond. And it was painting a picture of who that person had become and why. 
And I remember thinking to myself, how could I have ever judged these people so harshly? And then I was given a life review of my own mistakes, the things that I was most ashamed of. And it was there that I learned a really powerful lesson. It was in that moment, facing all those things and realizing that, you know, we all make decisions with the information that we have at the time. And I'm not saying that we should let ourselves off the hook for doing things that aren't good. But we all make poor choices at some point in life. And it was there that I forgave myself. And the power of forgiveness is what transformed me. And I'll tell you how. In this temporal world, my daughter Maria, who's 26 years old, who's never spoken to me. I don't know. She's never said, I love you, daddy. She can't walk, talk, or feed herself. She's total care. And that has tormented me my whole life. And yet, in that place, when I forgave myself, there was Maria standing in front of me. She came out of that web, and she's standing there perfect and whole with this beautiful light coming through her eyes. Not the kind of light that you and I see here in the temporal world, but that spiritual light that animates all life. And it was there that we had a conversation in that unspoken language of the ethereal. And I asked her, I said, Maria, I've never heard your voice. I, I don't know anything about you, your personality. I've never heard you say, I love you, daddy. Your mother and I have taken you all over the country to find a cure. We don't know what to do for you anymore when you're having seizures. Tell me, tell me what I can do for you. And she said three words that transformed my life. She said, just love me. And when she said, just love me, it was there that I cried out into that space and heard my own voice echo back to me. I said, I never want to leave this place. And when I said, I never want to leave this place, I found myself back in my hospital bed. And that was the end of my experience in the ethereal. Wow. And, and I was pretty upset. <laughs> That's a lot to unpack, Rob. Okay. So first of all, uh, it says in the Bible, we're made in the image and likeness of God. I think most of us think God looks like, for me, anyways, I always thought God looked like Father Time, you know, a version of Dumbledore in the Harry Potter movies or Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah. I believe, after having done this work for a long time, that we are made in the image and likeness of God in spirit form. We're all a spark right. of the divine and your exactly. web of those little quarks, those little teeny flickering sparks. lights, sparks are sparks of the divine. That's yeah. that's my take on that. Number two, I think a lot of us think that when we talk to God, we're going to hear a voice that sounds like James Earl Jones and say, Rob, here's what you need to learn, kind of a thing. Yeah. And it's, it doesn't happen that way. Spirit communicates no. telepathically. And you not only witnessed that and experienced that with Frosty, your brother-in-law, but you experienced that when you were in that space of, yeah. of spirit. 
The other thing that I find interesting is that you were disappointed because you were waiting for the, I call it the welcome to heaven committee, which is the deceased right. loved ones and family and pets. Pets are there. I had a, <laughs> I heard about a guy, I think it was last week or the week before. And I was talking with her, his daughter, he's deceased. And she said, as he was dying, he kept saying, it's okay. Um, what was the, 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 it was a white Arabian stallion that he owned oh. for years and that horse's name was gypsum and he kept saying it's okay gypsum not ready yet it's okay but he kept talking to this horse whose spirit was in the room and she was telling me about that i said yeah i mean i see all kinds of spirits in the room when somebody's dying the reason you didn't see the welcome to heaven committee of all your family you weren't dying at that point that was an experience for you along your journey to give you food for the journey spiritual food for the journey because before that before the storm over lake michigan and you were talking about i'm thinking how did you have the stamina and the courage to go on my goodness after everything that you'd been through yeah i mean that's why it was given to me i know that now um and i know that i had to come back tell the story it took me three years to write the book through a lot of encouragement from doctors and and other and other folks but it was, um, and and having seen Maria perfect and whole has given me the strength and the fortitude now. It's still a tough, every day is a tough, it's a tough road. But um, when I really get down, I see her in that place and I know that that's the end game. And it gives me the strength to continue. And I realized too, Julie, that when I was there, that you see, God uses light to create, heal, and transform us. That's what he does. That's what God does. That's what divine love is. So we're all part of this divine love and light of, of God's consciousness. And that's just a, it's just a magnificent thing. Because, you know, before all this, I was a good Catholic. And I was just... Uh, I was a believer just as an insurance policy, you know, because if something happened, I wanted to make sure I was going to heaven and there was always confession, you know. So, but after this, once you know, you know, and, you know, there's no going back. So it's been just a marvelous uh, road. Well, and to your point about everybody being connected and we think about all of the wars and all of the strife and all of that stuff that's gone on since the beginning of time and still is going on now. And for heaven's sakes, you're a great example. It's kind of like the United Nations has treated you. You've talked about that you've had doctors from all different kinds of cultures and religions, and they've all come together to help heal you and help you on your journey. Talk about being connected as one in their efforts. Even, even Dr. Patel and the doctors in Chicago and your doctors, wherever else you've been treated and you think about, oh my goodness, what's the chance of that happening? Well, exactly. That's why it, you know I wrote that chapter all one because I was so fascinated with that too, Julie. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've had uh, Dr. Dr. Patel is a Hindu. Dr. Bajwa is a Sikh. Dr. Carson is a Christian. I've had Muslims. Dr. Uriel's Jewish. Um, it's it, from all over the spectrum. And I and I wanted to know what is the common thread 
woven through all of these world religions. And it's love. Love is the universal language that God speaks through all creation. And when we get disappointed, like you say, about wars and strife and all of these things, I've come to understand in my life that the only thing we can control are our own actions. God controls the outcome because we're not smart enough to understand that ultimate plan. And it's difficult to see it. It's just, I've been tormented for 25 years with Maria until I, and now I realize I had to die and have this experience so I can share it and, and understand that adversity could be a friend because it's adversity that introduces us to not only our true selves, but it helps us to, if we look at it in the right way, create a, a closer relationship with God, because that's where we really learn what we're made of, you know, when we're pushed into a corner. So it's been um, all the life lessons that come out of it have been just marvelous for me personally. Interesting point, too, that you bring up about Maria being happy and healthy and whole you and I both work with an organization called Helping Parents Heal. And yeah. it's thousands of parents around the world who've lost a child, whether that child was in utero or an infant or small child, or it's a 90-year-old person losing their 70-year-old child. A child is always a child. And yeah. the one thing that we hear over and over and over again is that these children are happy, healthy, and whole. Yeah. And they're around us all the time. And all we have to do is just say something to them, either aloud or in our heads, and they're going to answer us. And what I teach, Rob, is it's that first thing that comes in your head as fast as you can snap your fingers, or sometimes even before, because time doesn't exist in the spirit world. Time's a human creation. Seems to me like you found that out in your two NDE experiences. And so I always talk about, well, spirits got our thoughts sometimes before we've had the chance to think it all out because of our time delay, because yeah. time's a human thing. Wouldn't you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Well, and that's one of the things that you know, there's there's so many details that you know we can only talk about so much in this podcast that are in the book um, that I don't have time to get into. But that is one thing that I learned in that second near-death experience, that time um, time exists only to help us deal with our one-dimensional thinking, because without it, we just go crazy. But for me, in, our, in that experience, in, in the ethereal, time was, it was kind of in flux between past and present. I did not see the future, nor did I worry about the future, because I also learned that, you know, in that web, there were dark parts of the web. There were some lights that weren't shining as brightly as they should. And I remember thinking when I was part of it and in it, I thought, is that, could that be evil or what is it? And I've, I've come to know that that was just where human beings are not allowing this divine light to shine through them as much as they should. And why does that happen? It could be the vicissitudes of life just wear on them. It could be addictions, drugs, alcohol, whatever kind of addictions that drag us into the darkness. So we have to be really vigilant and be aware of the things that drag us into the darkness 
because the darkness only has one goal, and that's to snuff out your light so you can express this beauty and the gifts that you were given to share while you're here. Because what I've learned, Julie, is that web is a reflection, really, of the light and dark struggles that all of humanity has been dealing with since the beginning of time. We're spiritual beings having a human experience first. Everything starts in spirit. Like you said, you know, spirit talks to us all the time if, you, if you're open to listening to it. I believe that everything happens in spirit first before it's manifest here. But what we do here matters because then it's almost like a mirror. What we do here, if we do something that we know, because I think we're born with a moral compass and we're all born good. But when we do something that goes against that, I think it darkens our spiritual life as well. And it, and it reflects off of one another. That's what I've learned through that experience, my own personal experience. Well, and it's been my experience in communicating with thousands of spirits over the years is that love flows. Love is divine energy. We either let it flow or we restrict it. And when we're in fear, we're restricting it. And that was my take on your dimmer lights, dimmer quarks than other ones that were brighter because everything is, all spirits are pure love. God is pure love. It's all pure love. It's all about love. All right. So back to the physical. Did you get a heart? I did. (laughs) You're here to, you're here talking to us. So I sure did. Oh, I got a beautiful heart. Well, as it turns out, and I've coined the phrase in my book that coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous because the heart that I got, Julie, um, is from a beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, 20-year-old girl who was born three months before Maria. And her ambitions, her name is Molly. It's the girl that lives inside me. And Molly's ambition was to work with special needs children. She had an affinity to special needs children. She stood up to bullies throughout her whole life when a special needs child was being pushed around or made fun of. And she had a uncanny, natural, artistic talent. And it was very odd to see this day and age, but Molly loved to pencil sketch. And when I met her father, two years after my heart, took me two years to to find Molly. But when I met her father at a Denny's restaurant, um, he brought some of her work and he brought her computer And it was there that I was stunned and in shock because when he showed me her artwork, my mother, an Italian immigrant who never had a lesson in her life either, also was an artist who drew pencil sketches. We have some of them in the home. And their work is almost, some of the pictures were almost identical. The way they would they would use strokes and shading and things like that, and some of the drawings, birds, some of the things that they drew were stunningly identical. And not only that, Molly's favorite flower was the daisy. My father, who I never really knew, we have this kind of iconic picture 
we had a big garden back in Pennsylvania that my father would dig every year. And there's this picture that we've all passed around. We all have a copy of, of my father kneeling behind his line of daisies that he would put in front of the garden. And Molly loved the daisies so much that she actually had it tattooed on her arm um, before she transitioned. So I'm convinced that Molly, and I can't get into all of the details about Molly's passing and why she made such a decision, but I'm convinced that Molly chose to live out the rest of her days through me and give me the opportunity to care for Maria. And we communicate all the time because now the science is understanding that the heart is not just a muscle. The heart has its own brain. And the only thing that makes heart transplant work, let alone the spiritual side of it, which you and I both know how this works, but scientifically now, they realize that the heart has a brain and the heart communicates with the brain in four ways very quickly. It communicates neurologically, biochemically through hormones. It, can, it uh, communicates through pulse waves, which is sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system. And then my favorite, it communicates through an electromagnetic field, which radiates at about 100 feet all around us, which is where not only the, our intuition comes from, but it's how we communicate with human beings and animals without language. That energy that comes out of us is kind of like a real simple example. When somebody, you're at a party and somebody walks into a room and you say, oh, I can feel that man's energy. Oh, he's terrible. It's coming from the heart. And now that we understand how the heart communicates with the brain, because when you think about it, that's the first thing that develops in the mother's womb. It's the heart that develops first, which is pushing the blood and oxygen to the brain. So these two are talking from day one, and they store the heart stores information, preferences, memories, feelings, emotions. It stores those things because these two are communicating all the time in the mother's womb, and of course, as we as we grow. So if, if we think about the heart uh, like a wireless radio that helps us to communicate with the world in ways that we still are trying to understand, and the brain is a landline, it's easier for us to, to try to put this together. And I, I go into a lot of research in the book, and I'm actually doing even more now and taking some courses so I can understand and really dig deep into this and, and and get into the details of how all this works and why our environment, music, food, things that we watch, the things that we think about um, are not only affecting our brain, but most of all, they're affecting our heart because that's really what's driving us as human beings. We think that it's logic that drives us, but it isn't. If that were the case, advertising wouldn't work because you know, look at a car commercial, right? I mean, what does that have to do with, with, the, with the car? So advertising works because we make decisions through our feelings and emotions. And, you know, it was Molly actually too that prompted me to 
to write the book and, and to get the message out because she just would not leave me alone. So anyway, that's well, they, well, and you talk, and I completely agree with everything mm -hmm. that you've just said, but then take it a step further. Everybody's heard of EKGs, which is the heart, and EEGs, which is the brain. Where do they put the electrodes? On the outside of the body. They're, they're able to quantify what the heart rate is on the outside of the body. They're tapping yeah. into that energy field of the heart and the energy field of the brain. And when I sure. tell people that, Rob, they say, oh my gosh, I never thought about it that way. Yeah. But That's good. I never thought of it either. That's a great way to, yeah. To, um, yeah. It's a good analogy, I think. Absolutely. Well, do you, it, I, it sounds like Molly, your heart donor, communicates with you telepathically. Is there anything else perhaps that was something that she, a habit that she had or something along those lines that you're finding yourself do that perhaps she didn't have it before you got her heart? Oh yeah. I mean, so, you know, it's kind of, I've always been a health nut. I've always exercised. I've always done. And I went through this period. My wife still laughs about it. Um, I travel a lot in my job and I went through this period where I just had to have M&Ms all the time. And I, and I've never, you know, I've never liked a junk food. Um, my wife will tell me that, you know, you drive in the middle of the road now, you never did that before heart transplant. So obviously that's how this young woman used to drive, but there's many, many examples. And then sometimes because um, Molly went through a lot of difficulties in her life. And then sometimes, Julie, I'll just be walking along and thinking it's a great day, whistling Dixie, and all of a sudden something will just come over me and just just bring me down. And I'll find myself kind of like in a dark room. Um, and like, what is this? What's, what is happening? Why, where, these feelings are not my own. How can this possibly be? So, so it's, uh, it can be haunting, but it can also be very joyful and, and interesting to, you know, to have these things occur because it gives me a greater understanding of how the body works and how spirit works. And like you said about all of us being connected and all of us being one, I'll tell you one thing. Can you imagine how having a woman's heart living inside you, if, if I were someone who wasn't accepting of that, um, it would be a whole different experience. But boy, I'm going to tell you something. When you're laying there and you know you're dying, if somebody said, we're going to put a dog heart in you, we know it's going to work or whatever. It's one way to unify all of us and to think about our humanity differently. That's how I look at heart transplant. And it's a, it's a different organ than any other organ. The other organs in our body, they might have some intelligence in terms of they know what they're supposed to do but they do not have a brain or the spirituality of the heart. It's not just a muscle. Well, it back to the judgment of others when you were having your second NDE and you were yeah. watching kind of a reverse of those nurses who you thought were snarky and you had to compassion for them because you got to get a glimpse of what they'd been through in their lives. I think that's something for all of us as a big takeaway in your story, Rob, in that we don't know 
what somebody's spirit wants to explore and experience. And we don't know what their past lives have been either. So we don't know the big picture and all we can do is love them. doesn't mean we have to have them as part of our lives if they're causing chaos in our lives or it's not serving us, but it's certainly a way for us to have compassion for others. The other point that you made about when you were in your NDE that you didn't see the future Future is the future. It's been my experience is fluid. So there are a bazillion variables that come in to affect an outcome. When right. people ask me, well, what's going to happen? I tell them, I can give you what I'm getting at this moment in time. It can be different tonight, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, because the future is fluid. We're not supposed to know because we create as we go. And we create from how something feels. When we overanalyze the daylights out of something from a cognitive standpoint, that's when we get tripped up. If we can lead from our heart, to your point, there's a brain and say, okay, how does this feel? Does this feel neutral or good? Okay, great, proceed. Does it feel badly? Why does it feel badly? This is a fear. Is it a real fear? Is it a fake fear? And be able to discern between the two. When we can lead from how things feel, oh my gosh, does the world open up to us? When you well said, yeah, yeah, well said, absolutely. Yeah, so do you believe that? Speaking of life experiences, do you believe that this round you were come in to have these life experiences so you could teach them to others? Yes, I do, and you know, it's kind of interesting because I was a person who my whole life struggled with purpose. And isn't it interesting? And this is why there's a chapter of my book called Gifts of Adversity. Isn't it interesting that at 56 years old, I had to die to figure that out? Because we have to find out what that is, because that's when our, our light really shines the brightest. Because the path I'm taking now is I want to get out there and teach more and more about the heart and the brain and how when we lead with the heart, like you said, how our life opens up and how it can change the world really. And because this is where the, this is where the power is from, from the heart. And when we learn and get these two in, to work in tandem and in coherence, and we're running on all six cylinders, there's really nothing like it. And it took me almost a lifetime to experience that and to really understand it and to get it. So absolutely, that's the path that that I'm taking now. The book was something that just had to get out there. I had to get the message out there. But this is kind of like the next step. Is there a generalized statement that you can leave with everybody who's watching and listening, Rob, of is there a general script for everybody's life purpose? Yes, I think that there is. I think that, and it all boils down to this, because just like I had my experience of judging others and and judging myself and then having to go through that process of forgiving myself, and then this miracle of being able to speak with my daughter happened. And I think that what's really important for us to understand is that when we realize that we're all connected, and that we come from the same place, 
this divine source of love and light, it's then that we'll find peace within ourselves and peace within our world. There you go. Yeah, well said. How can people learn more about you? They can go to my website. It's Rob A. Gentile, G-E-N-T-I-L-E.com, Rob A. Gentile.com. And they can find my website there. They can connect with me through my website. Uh, they can learn about my book there. They can purchase my book on Amazon. And I do answer, um, even though it might take some time because I get a lot of emails, but I personally answer all emails. If anyone has a question or they want to communicate, I'm happy to do that. What a gift you are to the world. Goodness. And Thank you. It's, it's really going to be fun to watch how the rest of your life unfolds because I think you're just ramping up, my man. I think, I think it's going to be fun to see what oh, your impact you. is on a global scale with all of these experiences that you've had. And, and you're a miracle. You're a walking miracle as far as I'm concerned from a medical standpoint and from a spiritual standpoint. So thank you. You bet. Thanks for joining us. Everybody sending you lots of love from sweet home, Alabama and North Carolina too. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Julie. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan and like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.